You're listening to, at any rate, J.P. Morgan's global research podcast, where we take a look at the story behind some of the biggest trends and themes in fixed income, currency, and commodities markets today. I'm your host, Alex Rover. In this podcast, we're going to discuss the near-term outlook for Fed monetary policy and the Treasury yield curve. And joining me today are uh, Mike Ferroli, our chief U.S. economist, and Jay Barry, the head of our government security strategy team. We are recording this on Friday, July 15th, and our comments today are based on the U.S. Fixed Income Markets Weekly, which is available to U.S. institutional clients of J.P. Morgan on J.P. Morgan Markets. This week, bond market participants are obsessed with two intertwined tensions, inflation and the trajectory for growth over the next few years. The release of the June CPI report earlier this week was like a shot of lighter fluid on a burning barbecue. The 9.1% one-year increase in the CPI through June marked the strongest annual inflation rate since November 1981. And a wide variety of the subcomponents have been strong lately with recent firmness evident in prices for energy, food, and other core categories. Uh, the recent surge in energy prices has been particularly significant with a 42% jump in energy CPI generating about a third of the headline inflation over the past year, uh, despite energy only accounting for about 7% of the CPI back basket. All told, the Fed's fight versus inflation isn't getting easier, and markets are anticipating a more aggressive policy response in the near term and a heightened level of recession risk over the intermediate term. So this is a good time to get Mike Feroli involved and help us sort through some of these issues. Welcome, Mike. So this week's big upside surprise on CPI really energized the debate on the size of the July hike. Um, on top of that, Friday's retail sales numbers you know, could have been a big influence as well, but it seems like they came through pretty benign. That said, the industrial production numbers are down, including a you know half percent drop in manufacturing and some downward revisions to May data. And I think based on all this data, you know, I'd like to know sort of where you are now and why. Yeah, sure. Um, so one actually one data point I would add to all of that is this morning we also saw that the Michigan longer-term inflation expectation number moved down uh, to 2.8 percent, which is actually kind of a little bit on the low side of. Um, where it's been in uh, uh, you know, last, uh, even in normal times. So and I only mention that because that is, a, uh, at least for the June meeting, seemed to be a pretty important uh, data point for the Fed's thinking. Uh, but I would say more important than all of those data points, just given how um, <laughs> uncertain the Fed reaction function has been, has just been to listen to what they're saying. And what they've been saying over the past uh, 24 to 48 hours has been uh, to push back a little bit against the idea that they would uh, 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 go 100 basis points. So, um, and most notably, uh, Governor Chris Waller yesterday uh, mentioned that 75 is, is his base case. Um, he did hedge a little bit by saying it's contingent on the retail and the housing data. Uh, you know, retail data was a little better today, but. Um, you know, when you look at it in real terms, and also when you account for the, the back, the downward revision in May, I wouldn't call it materially stronger, which is which was his, um, uh, uh, you know, benchmark for changing to 100. So, um, so I think given the, the talk, what we've heard also from some of the other uh, Fed officials, it sounds like they want to uh, stick with um, 75, which. Uh, you know, probably makes sense in an environment in which um, we are starting to see some signs of, of uh, 
growth softening here. Uh, we have had a bit of a move up in jobless claims. Uh, and I think there are some reasons to think that we may be past the worst uh, in inflation, uh, including this morning, we had a pretty sizable drop in um, ex-fuel import prices. So the tide may be turning here on inflation. Uh, and for that reason, you know, going with 75 seems like um, not a, uh, uh, you know, that, uh, that policy from here, but that certainly seems to be the message. Most importantly, though, is that's that seems to be the message coming from Fed speak. So don't fight the Fed. You know, we're about to go on blackout. That seems to be the game plan. So we're not going to fight them on that. So if, if they do, do do go with 75 this time, what what's the what do you think the path is beyond that? So beyond that, we uh, you know, we think they, they go 50 in September uh, and we still have uh, uh, them reaching by the end of the year, what we think is going to be at least the provisional terminal rate, which is, which we see at three and a quarter to three and a half percent. So that's uh, that's unchanged from our previous uh, you know prior outlook for the Fed. So let me ask you this question then, and we we had sort of discussed this previously, but you know being a you know, that we're getting ready to go in that the blackout period where we can half out from the Fed meeting. It's not a SEP meeting, but um, do you suspect the committee's view on the, on, on the neutral rate and terminal rates have shifted based off the recent events? So I don't necessarily see much in recent events to make me um, think that terminal, or I'm sorry, that neutral has changed, right? So when you think about the determinants of neutral should be trend growth, uh, should be a very important determinant. Um, nothing suggests that trend growth is, if anything, I think some of the news on trend growth may be a little um, uh, disappointing, particularly the productivity numbers, given that uh, probably have another negative productivity outcome in the second quarter, which would reinforce the idea that neutral is low, which it already is in their estimate. It's, they have it at two and a half percent nominal. Uh, you know, nor do I see condition, you know, financial conditions. Uh, suggest otherwise, right? So given where uh, terminal is being priced by the market, that seems to be tightening financial conditions. So that would suggest that neutral is, you know, somewhere below three and a half percent. So it's an unobservable variable. You're never going to get a lot of news that will change your view on it. I don't think the news we've gotten, you know, over the past, um, you know, six to 12 weeks has changed my view. And I don't I doubt their view of neutral either. So let me let me ask you this question too, because on, on Thursday this week you released a note talking about the Fed's gradualism and and really sort of you know talked about the history of sort of making gradual uh, gradual changes and I guess contrasted that with with the Volcker period and you know you noted that Powell is sort of you know in you know the edge of a Volcker Volcker sort of period now too. So what um, I guess can you explain sort of the you know how that fits in here and and you know what's I guess, well, what's the right approach? Sure. Um, you know, really, beginning in the first quarter of this year, the Fed said, you know, we need to get to neutral, which is 2.5%, you know, quickly. And, uh, uh, but we're still, you know, we're still not even at neutral, right? We're still about a point below neutral. Uh, so then you say, well, why didn't, you know, if they wanted to get to neutral, why didn't they just go there? And there is this history that the Fed tends to move gradually toward where they want to, where they want to be. Uh, there's a bunch of reasons for that. Um, you know, some may be concerns about the financial market response. Uh, 
uh, and financial stability. Uh, I would think uh, in this environment where inflation is, you know, clear and present danger and the risk to uh, unmooring inflation expectations uh, is pretty high, uh, that you really shouldn't be worried about financial conditions. You actually want to tighten financial conditions. You always want to be worried about financial stability, but I don't see any sign that what the Fed has done has posed a real systemic risk to the financial system. So I would think that, you know, looking back, uh, I would have advised going to neutral quicker and informing the market of that. You know, now that we're pretty close to neutral, it probably doesn't make much difference from here. I think we're getting closer to a point, I think after the end of this month, where we'll, we can go, uh, where we'll be closer to where they want to be such that the gradualism uh, constraint won't be as um, binding on their policy as it has been over the past six months. Thanks, Mike. So let's uh, turn to Jay Barry now and talk a little bit about how the inflation news has, has moved the, the Treasury curve this week. In fact, it seemed to have twisted and twerked the curve flatter based on you know varying views of Fed hawkishness. Can you recap what happened and and you know basically you know what are the market's probably most focused on now in your opinion? Yeah, sure, Alex. Like you said, it's been quite a week for the Treasury market, and you know I think early in the week. Um, Long end yields declined as risk appetite and risk assets moved weaker. But I think the seminal event, as you mentioned, was CPI on Wednesday when the yield curve flattened nearly 20 basis points end to end with front end yields rising and, and long end yields declining. And I think um, where we sit right now at the end of the week is with front end yields close to unchanged, but long end yields 20 basis points lower. So the front end has clearly been dictated by this volatility about how we think about Fed pricing at the next meeting in July and, and the path beyond that. And I think, you know, we've talked about how for the past five weeks or so, the uncertainty driven by the May CPI release and the Fed's quick pivot to 75 basis points has driven with it a huge amount of volatility in the wake of CPI and the Bank of Canada's surprise 100 basis point hike on Wednesday. The markets went so far as to price in 93 or 94 basis points of hikes at the peak by Wednesday evening, U.S. Thursday morning. Um, but following the commentary from Governor Chris Waller um, and to an extent um, St. Louis Fed President Bullard, both making the comment that they you know, have 75 basis points as their central view for the outcome for two weeks from now, that's allowed the front end to reprice lower. And markets are pricing in slightly more than 75 basis points of hikes for the July meeting um, and only 60 basis points, only 60 basis points and change for the September meeting. So you know, it's that sort of volatility that sort of kept the front end anchored at somewhat high rate levels as we expect another supersized hike later this month. But the long end of the curve has has really, you know, been well anchored here. And I think some of it is because of, you know, one, I think we've seen that um, despite the fact that realized inflation um, has risen to, to very firm levels and levels that we haven't seen in four decades, particularly on the sticky front, as Mike said, that inflation expectations aren't really getting unanchored even with this. And we saw that with the decline in the five to 10 year ahead, University of Michigan consumer expectations on inflation today. Um, and with the very sort of muted behavior of break-evens this week as well. So I think long end yields have been anchored by that. I think they've also been anchored by the fact that we got through the CPI report and we'd note that this week's bond auction actually saw the highest share of end user demand on record. So amid all this very high volatility and weak liquidity, I think market participants having CPI out of the way, use the auction as sort of as a, um, 
liquidity event, and we're able to sort of digest that. So on balance, we've got the broad yield curve now sitting more or less at its flattest levels that we've seen since the fall of 2000, just prior to the tech-induced recession that brought the Fed to, to lower rates very quickly there in 2001 through 2003. Well, so we talk about the flatness of the yield curve, but we keep getting questions about one point on the yield curve, which, which is sticking out like a sore thumb, and maybe that's a good analogy for it. So the, the 20s you know, continue to be sort of cheap to the rest of the, rest of the curve. Um, and you recently did an analysis, you know, basically sort of you know, comparing you know, the 20s on a rel relative value basis versus corporates. Um, can you tell us what you're, what's, what's going on there and what, 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 you're, what you're thinking about? Yeah, I think we've gone through iterations of pretty sharp 20-year sector underperformance since it was first introduced um, back in May of 2000. And I think at its root, the issue with the 20-year stems from sizing. And I think if we recall when it was first reintroduced, the primary dealer community, I think the buy side, and TBAC largely recommended to the Treasury that it should size the 20-year somewhere around 70 to 75% of the size of the 30-year bond auction. Those recommendations, I think, were, were largely um, ignored, and instead, Treasury sized it at the same size as the 30-year bond auction. So it finally started to sort of take a deeper stock about what had happened with the 20-year last summer and has been cutting 20-year auction sizes more aggressively than auction sizes across the curve since November of last year. But even with where we are right now, the 20 are still 80% of the size of the 30-year bond. So it's slightly large and slightly larger than, than would have been recommended. So I think at its root, you know, the iterations of this 20-year performance have been driven by those factors. And we've seen very severe performance in the author runs because those are all much larger size and somewhat sort of orphaned along the curve. That's the root of the issue. The I think the, the more proximate reason of everything that we've seen lately and the 20 year seems to be the poster child for this is, you know, starting with what happened with May CPI, the uncertainty over the Fed's near term path and its reaction function has elevated implied and delivered volatility to levels that we haven't seen in more than a decade outside of a very short window in March of 20. And that matters because there's a very high degree of sensitivity of treasury market liquidity and depth to volatility. And, you know, we show a chart on that in our weekly this week that Front-end volatility as it's marched substantially higher over the past year has led total market depth significantly lower across the curve to the point where it's sitting not as weak as it was in the spring of 20 or late 2008, early 2009, but, but very close to it, which tells us that every single trade is having a larger footprint in the market than it's had. And this is sort of weighing on the 20-year sector. So traditionally, We've modeled 20s on the curve as a function of what overall rate levels do and the curve slope do. And that explains like two thirds of the variance in the 20 year sector, but it doesn't explain all of it. And we've made the case that's high volume risk appetite that are driving this latest leg that because the bond is still too big, the incremental participant who needs to support the sector, an active levered player or the street, every time vol picks up, needs to liquidate it. So we added a factor for high grade credit spreads, which may seem pretty funny to everyone who's listening right now, but it's a factor that we use to use to talk about risk appetite that we use to value the tips break even curve as well. And we find when we add that in, it explains like 75% of the variation. But even with that, the 20 year sector still looks cheap on the curve right now. So I think all else equal, like it looks attractive, um, but we have a high degree of uncertainty about the treasury's path with the decision it makes for the 20 year at the next refunding announcement on August 3rd. 
Um, I think there are varying degrees of you know, recommendations out there about what should be done, but it certainly raises the risk a bigger cut is made at the refunding. And until we get more certainty from the Treasury, and until vol starts to come down, it's going to be hard for the 20-year sector to normalize along the curve. That's helpful. I mean, and since you brought up the refunding announcement, after the after we get through the Fed meeting, I mean, that's that's basically the next week. Um, and so 20s, you know, may may or may not be on the menu. You, you, we never really know until we get closer. Uh, but what uh, what else do you think we might see as we as we get to the, the August refunding? Yeah. So, I mean, our baseline has been that Treasury doesn't need to continue with this sort of wholesale round of coupon size cuts that it's been making because it's moving from being overfunded now to probably being underfinanced next year, really as a function of the fact that the deficit um, stops sort of narrowing as quickly as it had, but also because with the Fed's QT underway, it doesn't change the Treasury's financing needs, but it rebuckets it away from the Fed and back to non-Fed hands. So because of that, we, we don't think it makes sense to see another round of cuts across the curve. But I think in the context of what you and I just talked about on 20s, there's a risk that they make another round of larger cuts to the 20-year sector. And you know, I think it's pretty interesting that when you sort of read the tea leaves of what happened last quarter, you looked at the TBAC's recommended financing calendar, and it recommended larger cuts to 20s that didn't occur. So it's very possible that even though we don't see broad cuts, that you could see another round of cuts to 20s, and that's what I'd be on the lookout for. The other thing I'd be on the lookout for is a discussion of the bill market. I think we knew the bill market would be under pressure this year. The bill share of debt outstanding has fallen to 15%, which is the bottom under the optimal range that Treasury has identified. But I think we're getting closer to an end game there because typically T-bill issuance starts to turn structurally positive just after the September corporate tax date. So we're getting within about two months of when that sort of sort of start to reverse. And we think bill issuance will be strongly positive in the end of the third quarter and into the fourth quarter in the early part of next year. But I think I'd be interested to see if there's any sort of change on their thinking there, because, you know, as everyone's talked about, clearly bills are in very, very high demand, particularly at the very short end of the bill curve. And the, the high demand for RRP indicates that there is a, a collateral shortage out there. So I'd be interested to see if there's any other discussion about um, the Treasury's thinking on the T-bill market and where it stands within the stock of overall debt. Yeah, it's definitely been the case that we've seen you know bill demand uh, higher. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of non-money funds, a lot of non-RRP you know participants who who are long cash. You can think of like state and local governments or some of the corporates uh, who are running money out there who, who you know who who want to be short duration. But everybody with the Fed move, and moving wants to stay inside of the, the next Fed day, you know, particularly on, on the fund basis. So. Um, that's, I think, helped to feed demand for, for the RRP and, and uh, keeps things very short term in, in, in the money markets, which you know, it, it's what you see during a hiking cycle, but it's not, it's not necessarily the healthiest, you know, the healthiest environment for the market. So, well, these are all great thoughts, Jay. I appreciate your, uh, your coming on today. And um, I think that wraps us up for, uh, for this episode of At Any Rate. Stay tuned for more episodes of At Any Rate, JP Morgan's Global Research Podcast Series. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please read JP Morgan research reports related to its contents for more information, including important disclosures. Copyright 2022, JP Morgan Chase and Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on July 15th, 2022.